Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 23b through 37 and 41 through 46. The battle extended beyond Beth-Avon, and the men of Israel were worn out that day, for Saul had placed the troops under an oath. The man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed. So none of the troops tasted any food. Everyone went out into the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the troops entered the forest, they saw the flow of honey, but none of them ate any of it because they feared the oath. However, Jonathan had not heard his father make the troops troops swear the oath. He reached out with the end of the staff he was carrying and dipped it into the honeycomb. When he ate the honey, he had renewed energy. Then one of the troops said, Your father made the troops solemnly swear, The man who eats food today is cursed, and the troops are exhausted. Jonathan replied, My father has brought trouble to the land. Just look at how I have renewed energy because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the troops had eaten freely today from the plunder they took from their enemies. Then the slaughter of the Philistines would have been much greater. The Israelites struck down the Philistines that day from Mishmash all the way to Ajalon. Since the Israelites were completely exhausted, they rushed to the plunder, took sheep, goats, cattle, and calves, slaughtered them on the ground, and ate meat with the blood still in it. Some reported to Saul, Look, the troops are sinning against the Lord by eating meat with the blood still in it. Saul said, You have been unfaithful. Roll a large stone over here at once. He then said, Go among the troops and say to them, Let each man bring me his ox or his sheep. Do the slaughter here and you can eat. Don't sin against the Lord by eating meat with the blood in it. So every one of the troops brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first time he had built an altar to the Lord. Saul said, Let's go down after the Philistines tonight and plunder them until morning. Don't let even one remain. Do whatever you want, the troops replied. But the priest said, let's approach God here. So Saul inquired of God, should I go after the Philistines? Will you hand them over to Israel? But God did not answer him that day. So Saul said to the Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the unrighteousness is in me or in my son, Jonathan, Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if the fault is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were selected, and the troops were cleared of the charge. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was selected. Saul commanded him, Tell me what you did. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of the staff I was carrying. I I am ready to die. Saul declared to him, May God punish me and do so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die, who accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel? No, as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground, for he has worked with God's help today. So the people redeemed Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul gave up the pursuit of the Philistines, and the Philistines returned to their own territory. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I recall this morning uh, the image of a marathon runner who's legs gave out before crossing the finish line. 
He wobbled and fell to the ground and did not have the energy or the strength to pick himself back up. He was so drained physically and, and dehydrated that he was sort of stuck out in the middle of this race and he could not get himself up to continue until someone much stronger than himself came by and, and picked him up off the ground and, and carried him through so that he could cross the tape. And as I think about that this morning, I can't help but wonder if, if some of you perhaps, perhaps feel like you're there. Maybe you've been running the race of faith, but you've come to a point where you're not sure you have the energy to take another step. You're drained. Perhaps you're spiritually dehydrated. Your legs are wobbling under the, underneath the weight of difficult circumstances or reoccurring sins, and that weight is pressing you down, so you're not sure if you're going to make it to the end. And if that's where you are this morning, then you're in need of someone much stronger than yourself to come to you, to come alongside you, to lift you up, and to carry you across the tape. And the good news for those of us who are believing in the gospel, who are worshiping Jesus today, is that we have such a person. We have someone in Jesus the Christ. One of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament is found in Hebrews chapter 12, where we are told to lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us or entangles us. We want to put that stuff aside so that we might run with endurance the the race that lay before us. And we are told there to, to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the source and perfecter of our faith. And we're reminded of how he has gone before us, that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and took his seat at the throne of God. And so you and I are gathered here today with the joy of knowing that from that throne, there comes flowing to us an ever steady stream of mercy and forgiveness, of rejuvenation, that everything we need flows to us from the throne of King Jesus. And so though we may be tired and we may grow weary, we may look to Jesus and find the refreshment, the sustenance, the strength that we need to keep going. You know, King Jesus is going to guarantee you that you and I cross the finish line. He will see to it that we break the tape when all is said and done. Now, our story today is found in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And, and it's a story about people of faith who have grown weary, who've grown tired. The army of Israel are drained. They are struggling. They're not sure if they can continue going on and they're fight against the Philistines. So if you have your Bibles, grab them and turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 14. The, the army of Israel is exhausted. They need help from their leader. They need help from their king, but the help they need isn't coming to them. The help that they need is actually being uh, kept back from them, and their leader, their king, Saul, is actually compounding their struggles by making a a foolish command, and he's making dangerous, self-absorbed decisions. And we find in this story that was read so well for us a moment ago that, 
that the very one that the people chose to be their king, the very one that they assumed would be their hero, he's the one who's now failing them. That his actions in this story do not look heroic, they actually look villainous. And as you consider the story that was read for us a moment ago, there was another character in the story named Jonathan. And although Jonathan is the one in the story who acts in a heroic fashion, it is Jonathan who, when we come to the end of the story, is treated more like a villain. You know, we live in a culture that's obsessed with heroes and villains. Every movie franchise that's making headway in our culture is doing so just uh, by the theme of heroes versus villains battling it out to either deliver people or to dominate them. So we have all sorts of franchises ranging from Marvel to DC to Star Wars to Harry Potter to all that Tolkien created with Middle Earth and, and our society is just obsessed with heroes and villains and the stories that surround them. And for me, as someone who watches those stories and reads those stories, as a viewer and a reader, I get the most anxious when the plots of the storylines in those books, stories, and movies, when they kind of turn and they become a little bit ambiguous, so you have a hard time telling, okay, who's the actual hero and who's the actual villain? When those lines get crossed, I get the most anxious as a reader or a viewer. But it's also the aspect of these stories that I find to be the most compelling. So you take, for example, Christopher Nolan's uh, the Batman trilogy that he put together. And you come to the second film of that franchise, Dark Knight. And at the end of the Dark Knight, you have this moment where the tables turn. And Batman, who had been acting heroically all along, he's now to be treated like the villain. He assumes that role in the perception of the people, taking responsibility for the havoc that the Joker reached. Well, when you look at this story, we're going to find a very similar dynamic here. A very similar dynamic where the one who's supposed to be the hero is acting like a villain and the one who's actually heroic starts being treated like a villain. And if we begin to kind of see this and hear it and allow our souls to be refreshed by that reality, this story is going to draw us to the nourishment of the gospel. Because that's the very same storyline that we find in the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus. You see, this story is quite complex, and as you heard it read over us over these past few moments, it might have seemed confusing that the meaning of this story may be difficult to discern. And one of the reasons why it's so challenging is because it uses a fair bit of irony. It has a lot of sarcasm in it, and irony and sarcasm can kind of make its message a, li a little muddy, but understand that the key that unlocks narratives like this in the Old Testament the machete that kind of cuts a straight path through a complex narrative or complex storytelling techniques. The key that unlocks that for us is found in the dialogue. So anytime you're studying the Old Testament and you're reading stories in the Old Testament, you want to pay attention to what the characters say because what the characters say tends to hold the key to understanding the meaning or the message of that particular story. And so that's how we're going to kind of work through this story today. I want to call your attention to three of the characters who speak. You have Saul, who, is, who essentially says three things. Then you have his son, Jonathan, who essentially says two things. 
And then you have the people of Israel who say one thing that's very, very important there towards the end. So you have three, you have two, and you have one. And that's how we'll begin. Let's start with the words of the king. The Israelites have been locked in a battle with the Philistines. The first half of this chapter, as we looked at last week, described the valiant efforts of of Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they're scaling up a mountainside to reach a Philistine stronghold. Because they want to take this territory back from their enemies. And so they climb up this mountainside and they wipe out about 20 soldiers in about a half acre area of land. And and after that happened, we're told that the Lord sent an earthquake. That everything started to shake. And when that happened, the Philistines grew fearful. They became terrified and started turning on each other. And then when you get to verse 23 of chapter 14, we're told that the Lord saved Israel that day. But we know the battle continued, that there were lots of battles kind of taking place around that particular battle. And we're told that the battle extended beyond Beth-Avim. And in other places, the men of Israel were fighting and they had grown weary. They had gotten tired. They needed a break. They needed some food. They needed respite. Yet King Saul forces them to keep going. Their leader lays a heavy burden upon them. And the first thing we hear Saul saying in the narrative takes the form of a command. It's Saul saying, I command. Look at verse 23, I believe. The man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed. And so Saul lays this command out there. He lays this oath upon the people, preventing his own troops from eating the The food that could have renewed and replenished their strength. And with this command, we find the king who's supposed to be heroic for the people acting more like a villain. You know, once upon a time, I ran in a half marathon race. And it was a wonderful experience for me personally. And what I really loved about it is that along the way, you had stations set up where volunteers were handing out Gatorade and and water and power gel packets, and and you would take these and you would consume them as you were moving along the course, and and all of that would kind of rejuvenate runners so that they might keep going. And then when you come to the end of a race like that and you cross the finish line, you find all sorts of stations set up with all sorts of food and all sorts of drinks and all sorts of supplies to help weary runners just replenish themselves. And it turns out that all long races kind of like that do that sort of thing. In fact, if you were to host that type of race, it would be foolish not for you. It would be borderline cruel for you not to provide that type of nourishment for the runners. And it strikes us to be as kind of like common sense because we know that our bodies need fuel to keep going. That we need to eat, we need to drink, we need fuel in order to exert ourselves physically. We need fuel in order to keep going as we are living and doing all the things that we, that we do. This is why if you're running a race, you don't fast in the middle of it. This is why if you are locked in a battle on the battlefield, you don't fast in the middle of it. Yet that's exactly what Saul commanded of his troops. And his command went far beyond anything the Lord required in his law in what's called the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Torah, nowhere in God's law does The Lord command soldiers to refrain from eating food or taking in nourishment when they are out on the battlefield. Now understand that this battle, 
that the Israelites are locked in. This battle is being undertaken so that Israel may reclaim territory within the promised land that the Lord was giving the people of Israel. They, they were needing to reclaim territory that they had lost. Now, if you're familiar with the storyline of the Bible and you know as Israel was brought out of Egypt and they were led through the wilderness being taken into the promised land, that the promised land was described as being a place that flowed with milk and honey. That the provision of God was all over the land. It was all over the place. And this provision wasn't provision that the people of Israel should have refrained from. This was provision that the people of Israel was to enjoy. And had they taken of the honey that was flowing through the land, they, they would have been able to renew their strength and replenish themselves for battle. <laughs> but they were commanded by their very king not to do that. Now, I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know why he told his soldiers not to eat the honey or to have anything to eat while they were fighting. Maybe he thought that in refraining from food and drink, he was setting his army up to be the more spiritual force. Maybe he was thinking that it's more spiritual to refrain from food and drink and depend utterly upon the Lord in that moment than it would have been had he allowed his soldiers to eat. Maybe he thought with this command that if they followed it, then they would garner the Lord's favor and he would find victory over his enemies. I don't know exactly what he is thinking, but I do want to make this, I do want to stress this point. Faith and common sense should not be pitted against each other. Faith and common sense are not ordinarily at odds. So what that means is when you and I utilize resources that are made available to us by the common grace of God, whether those resources take the form of medicine or technology, utilizing resources made available to us by the common grace of God, when we do that, that is not to set your faith aside. That is actually recognizing that faith and common sense are not ordinarily at odds. So you get to the New Testament and you have a story about a man named Timothy. And Timothy had some stomach troubles. He, he was sick. And his friend and mentor in the faith, the Apostle Paul, would counsel Timothy, hey, you need to take some wine for your stomach. You need to take some wine because it could have a, a medicinal effect on your stomach problems. Now, no one would have ever accused Paul as being a man who lacked faith. No one would have ever accused him of being someone who did not trust the Lord to heal our bodies or trust the Lord to replenish our strength. No one would have accused Paul of that sort of thing. Paul was a man who witnessed God's miraculous power. He knew the Lord could heal miraculously, that he did not have to use means like wine or whatever the case may be. Yet Paul is the one who would counsel young Timothy, hey, take a little wine for your tummy. Faith and common sense are not to be put at odds. So what that means for you and I is a lot of things. One, if you have a headache and you pop some Tylenol, you, you are not living in fear. You are not lacking faith in doing so. And what it also means is we think about kind of these strange days that we're living in. And we begin to discover all the, you know, as, as sound research reveals the best practices and 
ways to kind of reduce the spread of COVID-19 or to mitigate its effects. Choosing to use those practices and to follow wise common grace counsel. Understand that when you follow such counsel and advice, you're not succumbing to fear. You're not bailing on your faith. What you're doing in those moments is you're recognizing that faith and common sense are not always at odds. And I say that being a pastor of the church who've, who've witnessed other churches in our city and around our country who are really struggling in, the, in their journey through the pandemic, Christians have not agreed on how to live through this thing. We've not been in agreement on how to approach the pandemic. There are some who have social distance more than others. There are some even now who are choosing to be vaccinated while others are not being vaccinated. There are some who advocate for wearing masks and others who do not advocate for wearing masks. And what's happened over time is that lines have been drawn in the sand. And those lines that have been drawn in the sand have not just been drawn for ourselves, they have been drawn around the lives of others. What's happened is that we've started making commands and setting expectations for other people to follow. And if they don't follow our commands or reach our expectations, we charge them with wrongdoing and we sentence them to various forms of death. And in so doing, what we do is we elevate our commands and we place them on the same plane as God's commands, assuming that our words carry the same weight as God's word, confusing the two more times than we care to admit. But when it comes to matters related to faith and common sense, when it comes to difficult situations and circumstances where there may not be clear commands and prescriptions found in the scriptures, when you find yourselves in those moments and in those situations, you have to learn to handle, handle those moments with charity and humility. That we must not go the way of Saul, elevating our commands and place them on the same plane as God's commands in Scripture. Because when you do that, you will find yourself lacking charity. You will find yourself lacking grace. There was no charity in Saul's words in this passage. Because on one hand, he says, I command. But then in the very next breath, we hear him saying, I charge. He says, I command. And he says, I charge. Now, Jonathan wasn't there when Saul issued this command. And when he found the forest flowing with milk and honey, he did what seemed right. He took his staff, he dipped it into the honey, he put some on his mouth, and that honey renewed his energy. It, light, it lit him up, so to speak. But then a soldier comes and tells Jonathan what his father commanded. And his son did not agree with him. His son thought his, the son thought his father's command was, was foolish. And then later when the battle subsides and the Israelites are exhausted, they, they return home and evening comes, but they're so hungry, they're so tired, they're so distressed and disoriented that they can't in that moment obey the actual commands of God. And so what happens is Saul's command opened the opportunity for the people of Israel, the army, to sin against the Lord. They were so hungry, we're told that they took sheep, goats, cattle, and calves, and they slaughtered them on the ground, and they started to feast on these animals before the blood was properly drained out. And that was a problem, because that was a command God had given his people. 
The Lord was very clear that you should not eat animals with the blood still in it. Now, the reason for that is because blood was considered valuable. It represented life. And so in Leviticus chapter 7, we read, Wherever you live, you must not eat the blood of any bird or animal. Whoever eats any blood is to be cut off from his people. God's clear command for the people of Israel. And when word reached Saul that the troops were now sinning in this way, he had the audacity to charge them with being unfaithful. I say audacity because he shows no remorse over the fact that his command compounded the soldiers' struggles. He ignored the plank in his own eye by making this foolish oath over the people, and and he went after the speck that was sitting in the soldiers' eyes. And what you find in this rhythm of Saul commanding and charging is that you find Saul doing the very same things that the Pharisees will do in the New Testament. The religious leaders of the Judaic world in the first century, they often made commands of people that extended beyond God's law. And every time they would do that, they would compound the struggles of people in trying to keep God's law because they would just add layers and layers and layers upon God's law that just burdened them and weighed them down. And so Jesus would step up and he would call them hypocrites. He steps up in Matthew chapter um, 24, I believe. He says, hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching, here it is, as doctrines, human commands. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what Saul has done. And then later he would say, they, that is the religious leaders, they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders. This is the same issue that's happening in 1 Samuel. The people were so tired from trying to obey Saul's word that they actually disobey God's word. And you find Saul doing something that's incredibly villainous. You know, tempting people to sin against God is an act of villainy. Anytime we tempt and encourage people to disobey God's law, God's command, we are moving in the form of villainy, not heroism. And I'll I'll show you how. Consider Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses will inevitably come. But woe to the person by whom the offense comes. That was his indictment on the Pharisees who were layering commands upon God's word. That's Saul's failure, the king's failure in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Woe to the person by whom offense comes. And so Saul's villainy is on clear display. He says, I command, and then he says, I charge, and then finally he says, I condemn. See, the king wants to take out more Philistines, but before doing that, a priest steps in and says, why don't you ask the Lord first if you should? And so Saul builds an altar for the first time and they go to the Lord and they ask the Lord for guidance and for counsel and for direction, but the Lord remained silent. He did not give Saul, he did not answer Saul's prayer. 
And so Saul decides that God's silence is the result of sin amongst the troops. He says, well, as surely as the Lord lives who saves Israel, even if, even if it is because of my son Jonathan, he must die. The irony of that statement is it's hard to miss. And then they go on and they cast lots to determine who's at fault. And the lots would fall on the king's son. The lots would fall on Jonathan. And so Saul then, in an incredible act of villainy, he condemns his son to death. In verse 44, he says, May God punish me and do so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. Do you hear the progression in Saul's words? He says, I command. He says, I charge. And then finally, he says, I condemn. It's a dangerous progression. And I'm wondering if a similar progression can be found in how we interact with other people in our lives. A similar progression where we say, I command, I charge, I condemn. A progression where we are making up commands and charging people who can't uphold our standards and then we condemn them with saying in a million different ways you're dead to me and we cut people out of our lives because they fail not to live up to God's commands but because they are failing to live up to our manufactured commands manufactured rules I'm wondering if we've allowed rules to ruin our relationships Are we allowing man-made rules to ruin our relationships? If so, we are moving in the way of Saul. If so, we are moving in the way of the Pharisees. If so, we are certainly not moving in the way of Jesus. Because in contrast to what Saul says in this story, Jesus would step up in Matthew 11 and he would say, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He's not compounding our struggles. He's not compounding our hardships. He's not compounding our distresses. He's saying, come to me. I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we consider the king's words. I command, I charge, I condemn. Now I want you to hear the words of the son, the words that Jonathan speaks. The first thing we hear Jonathan says in this story is he says, I sympathize. He says, I sympathize. After he learned of his father's foolish command, notice what he says in response to the soldier who told him about what happened. He said, my father has brought trouble to the land. Just look at how I have renewed energy because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the troops had eaten freely today from the plunder they took from their enemies, then the slaughter of the Philistines would have been much greater. And so when Jonathan learned of the heavy burden that Saul put upon the soldiers and of people who were already hard-pressed, who were already weary, he sympathizes with them. He makes it known that his father's oath, his father's command was foolish. It was rash. It wasn't one to be followed. And And essentially, he's saying to the soldiers, look, I'm on your side. My father should not have made life harder on you. And so you hear Jonathan's sympathy in his response where he's identifying with the people. But then we also hear Jonathan say, I sacrifice. He says, I sympathize. And then he says, I sacrifice. When the lot falls on him, notice what he says in verse 43. I tasted a little honey with the end of the staff I was carrying. 
I am ready to die. Now think about this. Does Jonathan speak a word in self-defense? Does he try to justify or defend himself in any way, shape, or form in that moment? Does he mention that he wasn't even aware of his father's foolish command before he broke it? Does he even appeal to the fact that he's his father's son in order to spare his own life so that he may continue to live? No, he doesn't. Now, there may have been some sarcasm in his response there in verse 43, but there was certainly sacrifice. Jonathan, Saul's son, saying, I sympathize, I sacrifice. You know, a good shepherd is one who's willing to lay down their lives for their sheep. A good shepherd is one who doesn't starve their sheep. A good shepherd is one who doesn't drive the flock to exhaustion and distress. A good shepherd is one who takes care of the flock. What should have happened in that moment is that Saul should have seen in Jonathan an example of the type of king he should have been. A type of king who lets us lie down in green pastures, who leads us beside still waters, the kind of king who renews our lives and leads us along the right path. He should have seen in his own son the type of king he should have been. A king who sympathizes with those who are suffering. A king who sacrifices on the behalf of the people. See, Jonathan is the hero that Saul fails to be, and for him, and the reason for that, was in how they viewed the kingdom of God in that moment. Saul understood the kingdom of God to be his kingdom to seize and his kingdom to rule. Therefore, he wanted vengeance on his enemies. He took everything personally. Go back through and listen to the number of first-person singular pronouns that come out of his mouth when he's speaking. But Jonathan, on the other hand, he understood the kingdom in that moment didn't exist for him. It wasn't there to prop his father up in authority or his father up in power or his father up in prestige. Jonathan understood that the kingdom of God wasn't for his to seize or to rule. Jonathan viewed the kingdom as something he should serve. He sought to serve the kingdom, therefore he sympathized with people. He sought to serve the kingdom, therefore he was willing to sacrifice for the people. And years later what we have is one who would speak in concert with, Johnson, with Jonathan. One who would say with Jonathan, I sympathize with the people and I sacrifice for the people. Listen to what Jesus speaks and how it lives in concert with Jonathan's spirit in 1 Samuel. Jesus once said to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. That is not my way. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you hear Jesus? I sympathize. I sacrifice. Do you hear the difference between the words of Saul and the words of Jonathan? And you, can you discern a different way for you to be in the world? Can you discern a different way for you to follow as you continue to live out these frustrating days in the midst of this pandemic? 
As you journey through these days, are you more inclined to say to those around you, I command, I charge, I condemn? Or are you more inclined to say with Jesus, I sympathize and I sacrifice? One of the reasons churches are divided and dividing over these moments is because too many people are saying, I command, I charge, I condemn, and not enough people are saying, I sympathize, I sacrifice. But the way of Jesus is the way of sympathy and sacrifice. The way of Jesus is the way that says, I'm going to put other people's needs ahead of my own. The way of Jesus says, I'm going to sympathize with those, even if I don't agree with them, I'm going to sympathize with them. And if it's up to me, I will sacrifice for them. That's the other orientation of the kingdom of God. That's the other orientation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've been swept up in and that we are now living in light of. So let's move in the direction that doesn't say, I command, I charge, I condemn with everything related to the pandemic. Let's move in the direction that says, I sympathize, I sacrifice. Now, there is one more group that we need to hear from in this story, and that's the people. Now, throughout much of this story, the people have been Saul's yes-men. Multiple times in the narrative, they simply say to Saul, whatever you want. We'll do whatever you say. That is, until they come to the moment when Jonathan, the one who had acted heroically, starts being treated like a villain. And when they see Jonathan, the the hero of the story, being treated like a villain, they step up and in unison they say, the son saves. And they remind everyone that the son saves in that moment. Verse 45, must Jonathan die? Who accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel? No, as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground, for he worked with God's help today. And with those words, the people redeemed Jonathan. With those words, they kept Jonathan from being put to death. The people spoke up and the son was saved. Now, years later, there will come another opportunity for the people of Israel to speak up. Another opportunity for the people of Israel to speak up on behalf of an innocent one. On behalf of a heroic one. But rather than stepping up and calling for this hero's freedom and life, the people will find this person in their crosshairs and say, the son must die. And they will clamor in unison, crucify him, crucify him. The son must die. Now, they could have said what the people said in 1 Samuel 14. They could have appealed to the work that God had done in and through the person of Jesus. They could have said, Jesus raised my daughter Tabitha from the dead. They could have said, Jesus opened my eyes so that I could see. They could have said, Jesus stormed the waves on the sea. They could have said, Jesus set me free from the demons that were oppressing and harassing me. They could have said so many things. But they didn't say anything. You did not hear those words coming from the people. No one referenced the work that God did in the life and ministry in Jesus. Instead, they just wanted to see him dead. And what you find in that moment when the crowd is turning against this this heroic one, Jesus the Christ, you find in Jesus one who doesn't speak up a word in self-defense. 
He doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't defend himself. Instead, Jesus allows himself to be treated like a villain. And he says on that day, I sympathize with the people. I will sacrifice for the people. You find Jesus being the true and better son. You find Jesus being the true and better Jonathan. Because on the, on the day of battle against the Philistines, Jonathan, the son of Saul, was ransomed by the people because of the work he did on the battlefield. But on the day of battle against sin, Satan, and death, Jesus ransomed the people because of the work he did on the cross. And when you think of Jesus dying on the cross, what do you hear him say? You do not hear him say, I command, I charge, I condemn. From the cross, you hear Jesus saying, I sympathize, I sacrifice. From the cross, you hear our hero saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's heroic. Heroes sympathize and sacrifice. Villains command charge and condemn and what you find in the gospel is jesus the greatest hero the universe has ever known allowing himself to be treated like a villain so that he might become our hero so that after he would give up his life on the cross and he would die in our place, he would not stay dead. The true and better son, the true and better Jonathan would rise up from the grave, victorious over sin, suffering, and death, claiming his place as the hero in all of our hearts and minds. This is why we look to Jesus. This is why we fix the eyes of our faith on Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is why we run our race with perseverance and endurance, because the hero is with us, the hero is for us, the hero has got us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the true and better Son, Jesus, into the world, not to command and charge and condemn, but into the world to sympathize and to sacrifice and to ultimately save. God, we fix the eyes of our faith upon Jesus in this moment, and we are praying that as we do so, you would pour refreshment, you would pour forgiveness, you would pour mercy into our souls, all for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name.